imagine a place where you go to work every day, you make a contribution to something bigger than yourself, you learn something new, you're protected and set free by a compelling set of values and you go home happy. Welcome to The Change, where we share stories and inspiration from servant leaders who work to destigmatize mental health issues and increase psychological inclusivity in the workplace. I'm your host, Adam Baru. What does it mean to be a great leader? Does it mean an attention to bottom line success? Does it mean that a company's stock price is going through the roof? Here on The Change, we discuss the great resignation often. It's a real thing, a factor that every business owner should pay close attention to if they aren't already. Because more than anything, the trends we are seeing with the great resignation are a reflection of how people are making decisions today regarding their careers. I've often wondered if the great resignation would have occurred without the pandemic. Part of me thinks this trend was inevitable, but the pandemic turbocharged its acceleration. Whatever the cause, one thing is for certain. Business will forever be changed. This isn't some temporary event that will go away. People want real and meaningful change with respect to their professional lives. Here to discuss the great resignation and the future of leadership is Gary Ridge, culture coach and chairman and CEO of WD40 Company. Hey, Gary, welcome to The Change. Yeah, g'day, Adam. It's great to be with you. Yeah, so happy to have you here. So, you know, one thing that struck me as I was, uh, you know, putting this episode together is you've clearly been in business for a while. You're an established CEO of, you know, a major company. And yet you described um, in one of your articles, I think through your blog, how it was, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, being on a flight and reading um, a book by the Dalai Lama that kind of propelled you towards this um, I don't know if reinvention is the right word, but just this clarity for you in the direction that you wanted to lead for yourself in becoming a better business leader um, as a culture coach. So why don't we start there and, you know, give us a little bit of, of perspective in terms of, you know, where you were at kind of in that time in your life when when you had this realization. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Adam, a lot. Um, yeah, that goes back a while. I've been... Uh CEO of WD40 Company for 25 years. I've been with the company for 35. And in 1997, when I was given the privilege to lead the company as the CEO, I'll admit it, I was scared. I really didn't know how to create a culture that people really wanted to go to work and were respected. And the, the phrase that I read that you're referencing, I was on at 35,000 feet somewhere over the Pacific Ocean in the middle of the night, flying from mm -hmm. Los Angeles to Sydney. And uh, I was reading some of the work of the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama said, our purpose in life is to make people happy. And if you can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. And mm -hmm. what was clear to me was there was a lot of leadership behavior where people were actually, leaders were actually hurting people and not sending them home happy. And I truly believe that happy people create happy families. Happy families create happy communities, and happy communities create a happy world. And more than ever today, we need a happy world. So my journey on that started way back then, about 25 years ago. Yeah, and, you know, I guess tell us a little bit about um, the business landscape at that time because, um, you know, what what were you witnessing in terms of other business leaders that had this perspective? Cause I, I can't, you know, going back in my own mind, I can't recall that it was really mainstream to have such a, you know, focus on employee first and, and, you know, going beyond productivity and being driven by, you know, just creating a world of happiness. No, it, you know, it, it was about the bottom line and how you got there didn't really matter because, it was, you know, to be seen as successful, it was how profitable were you. But I think what what really helped me and in, in, in a tremendous way, as I said, as, as becoming a new CEO of a public company, that's a huge responsibility. Yeah. And I needed to, to learn uh, the techniques of, of how to build a an enduring culture. You know, imagine a place where you go to work every day, you make a contribution to something bigger than yourself. You learn something new, you're protected 
and set free by a compelling set of values and you go home happy. So I looked around and I found a master's degree at the University of San Diego. It was called the Master of Science in Executive Leadership. And it was a program that was put together by the university and Ken Blanchard. Mm -hmm. And I applied and I was enrolled in this master's degree. And the probably one of the greatest teachers of servant leadership in the world, uh, Dr. Ken Blanchard, Mm -hmm. uh, was my professor. And uh, from that learning, um, I then said, I'm going to try to take these learnings of servant leadership, which were so important, and put them into practice at WD-40 Company. And we started that and uh, back in the year 2000. Uh, and back then, um, there wasn't a lot of talk about employee engagement. There wasn't a lot of talk about you know, creating great places other than those that make profit and we want it to be different. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm curious, you know, where this comes from, like how, you know, where this side of your leadership perspective came from. I mean, was this, you know, did you grow up in an environment that was very, you know, supportive of, you know, people and differences and emotional intelligence and that sort of thing? You know, if you, I guess if you would just, you know, give some, perspective as to like where you think this emanated from within yourself to to be this type of leader well you know when i was growing up i didn't really realize the influence that a number of people were having on me until i you know was given the opportunity to lead myself and you know subsequent to doing that master's degree i wrote a book with ken blanchard we co-authored a book together called helping people win at work uh, a philosophy about not marking people's papers and helping them get an A. And in that book, I actually talk about the people who influenced me as I was growing up, not only my mom and dad. You know, dad worked for the same company for 50 years from when he was 16, 15 to when he was 65 years old. Mm -hmm. My mom, who lived till she was 99 years and nine months old, you know, was certainly someone that uh, was always the cheerleader. But then I, I worked in the local hardware store and the local sporting goods store and the local dry cleaners. I worked on milk trucks. And each one of these individuals were showing me ways that leadership should be that until later in my life, I didn't realize the lessons I was learning. And I can give you a, a very little example of that. Yeah. I worked at a place called um, Five Dock Sports Store. And Five Dock was a suburb that I grew up in Sydney. And the owner mm -hmm. of that was a guy by the name of Jack Lambert. And uh, in those days, um, they used to do repairs to tennis rackets uh, in the store itself. So, you know, in the back workshop of this sports store, Mr. Lambert would be out there actually stringing tennis rackets. And I remember Mr. Lambert's hands. He had, you know, calluses on his hands because he was pulling what they actually called catgut then, and I'm sure it wasn't catgut, through <laughs> and, and tying it really hard and, you know, it was, you know, you could – his hand, his fingers would sometimes bleed. And, and I still remember vividly walking out to him one day and saying, that, that hurts, Mr. Lambert. Why are you doing that? And why are you putting so much effort into that tennis racket? And it's a bit like the story about who packed my parachute. Mr. Lambert said, the person that is using this tennis racket tomorrow is depending, dependent on the work that I do today. So in anything you do, remember you're doing something to help someone else play a game that's their best game. Mm -hmm. And that was just one of the things I reflected on. So, But really it was, you know, when I became the CEO of a public company, I went, wow, I, I, I wake up every morning and I have the, the opportunity to either make a positive difference in people's lives or not. And that making a positive difference to me, Adam, was absolutely more refreshing than not making a positive difference. Absolutely. You know, and here in 2022, um, especially given the Great Resignation, you know, for leaders to make this type of concerted change, um, there, there is kind of mainstream support behind that or there's a lot of dialogue. So people kind of, you know, people are understanding you know, why these, 
why it's important to to have a, a people first type of management style. But you know, back I'm curious, you know, your experience back in the '90s when you began to, you know, as your role as CEO and you began to implement uh, some of these employee first changes. What sort of what were you met with, I guess, in the business community and and perhaps among your your board? Um, if we ignore him, he'll go away because he's been drinking too much at Ken Blanchard's Kool-Aid. <laughs> but there was also something else I read that really um, was very impactful on me, and it was written by Aristotle, who was born in 384 BC. And Aristotle said, pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. So my case to our board and our leadership was if we created an environment where people absolutely, in most cases, enjoyed what they were doing, do we feel that they would do a better job? And if so, if they did a better job, would they delight our customers? And if they delighted our customers, would our customers come back to us again and again and again and again? And in hard times, would people get up every morning and live our just cause, which is, you know, a group of people that come together and protect and feed each other? And the answer was yes, because you can have the greatest strategy ever. Let's, Adam, you and I write a strategic plan. We could do that. Let's take it over to Harvard Business School, give it to some, you know, really smart professor and say, give us a mark on our strategic plan. And he says, yeah, or she says, yeah, no problem. They grade us 70 out of 100. Fantastic strategic plan. Oh, so good. But what about if only 20% of the people who go to work every day in the organisation are actually engaged and enthusiastic about ex- executing that strategic plan? Well, if you did simple math, all right, this is pretty basic. 20 times 70 is 1,400. What's your outcome? 1,400. But let's say 80% of your people who went to work every day were enthusiastic and motivated and and encouraged to execute that strategic plan. 80 times 70 is 5,600. Now, for a dumb guy like me, that made sense. (laughs) Okay. I've read your... Your articles are on the soul sucking CEO. So I'm, I'm, I'd like for us to get there. So like, as you know, as you began, you know, this, this focus on, on yourself, uh, you know, with this perspective on your team, I guess, what, what did you see in yourself? I mean, what did you have to learn, um, in terms of maybe some belief systems that you had or belief systems just in business in general that you had to power through and, and demonstrate, you know, in order to, let me, let me put it this way. What were some of the measurements for yourself and for the marketplace in which, you know, this work towards creating happy and valued employees, um, what metrics were out there that you could demonstrate? Yes, this is actually working. Well, um, firstly, you know, if I look at myself, one of the other great mentors I've had is Marshall Goldsmith. And he's named the number one executive coach in the world. And, and I met Marshall um, because I, I use his book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, mm-hmm. uh, the 20 bad habits that great leaders have in the class that I teach at the University of San Diego. And what became clear to me was I probably had every one of those attributes in some degree of abundance as a leader. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we learned in the class that I took, the master's degree I took was, you have to understand who you are before you can lead others. And when I went yeah. through that evaluation, you know, in the disc profile, I was a turbo D, be brief, be bright, be gone. That's that's Al, that's Al mm-hmm. the soul sucking CEO. So I had to be aware of the behaviors that I had that weren't creating a culture that was appealing to many people. So it was first, the first lesson is, the first learning moment is, and I, you know, I coined the phrase, the learning moment, because, you know, one of the things that we're always afraid of is failure. So let's turn any failure into learning. So one of the things I had to learn was to be self-aware. What, what, what don't I want to be? 
And in fact, what I wanted to be when I understood that was much more comfortable than what I don't want to be. So, you know, early on, we started doing employee opinion surveys in our organization. We were analyzing ourselves. And as we did that, we saw that we were growing the trust and the psychological safety we had in the business because people were actually ended up saying, I love to tell people I work at WD-40 company. And it wasn't because we were giving them free pizzas on a, <laughs> for lunch. It right. was because we were tra- treating with them with respect and dignity. We cared about them, which means our, our empathy ate our ego instead of our ego eating our empathy. We were candid with them, which means no lying, no faking, no hiding. I believe most people don't lie in organizations. I believe they fake and hide because of fear. We were Mm -hmm. holding them accountable. What does that mean? It means we were very clear around what an A looked like. What does an A look like for me as as your leader? And what does an A look like for you as the person I lead? And importantly, we took the word manager away and we replaced it with coach because our job as leaders is to be a great coach. And what does a great coach do? A great coach observes the play to improve the player's play so the player can win the game. Mm-hmm. And most managers micromanage, particularly Elder Sol, CEO. And then thirdly, we said we're going to hold each other responsible. So there was a lot going into the, the mixture of this petri dish that we call it, that, uh, that builds culture. When I was in school in Australia many years ago, my science teacher gave me a Petri dish. And the science teacher said, well, we're going to grow culture in this Petri dish. I said, oh, that sounds pretty interesting. What, what do you have to do? They said, first, you have to decide what are the ingredients that you're going to put in there to make good culture. So you decide mm-hmm. what that is. Now, what do you do? You watch the Petri dish every day. Why? Because as the owner of that Petri dish, you need to ensure that no toxins were getting in to kill the great culture. And if they were, you treated them and you took them out and you have to do that consistently. Yeah, I want to definitely echo that because that was my experience, too. And I think we spoke about this when you and I met last Um how, you know, for for my company, Sweet Centric, I've been which I've been running for five and a half years. It was truly you know, the pandemic and, you know, some pretty severe anxiety that I was going through where I, I kind of had a revelation that I had some pretty severe imposter syndrome and I, I needed to address it. And so I started working with a coach and, and really, you know, like to your point that you started with, um, in the last response was, you know, you have to be true to yourself and you can't try to lead you know, trying to check other people's boxes, right? You have to be true to yourself. You have to be authentic and you have to have self-awareness. And I think, you know, for me, um, you know, what I look at for, you know, great leaders is always like a very heightened sense of self-awareness and also vulnerability and authenticity. Um, and so, you know, why do you think, uh, you know, why do you think, I guess, with this great resignation trend, why why are we seeing more and more how conversations around how important these are in leaders? And, and why do you think that was perhaps missing, you know, before the pandemic in business leadership? Well, you know, as you've heard me say, Adam, I, I'm calling it not the great resignation, but the great escape. Mm-hmm. People are escaping toxic cultures. So before COVID, people went to work. And a percentage of them were engaged, unfortunately a low percentage. The rest were kind of okay. And they went home and life was okay or even good. So okay and okay or okay and good put together means life is okay. And then COVID hit. Suddenly the work environment became more toxic, less connected, and life was not okay anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. So we had not okay and not okay. And in that circumstance, people said something has to give. So they either, unfortunately, in some circumstances, that was relationships that fell apart. But in a lot of circumstances, in the business environment, people going to work said, I'm not putting up with this anymore. This is not my, I can't have not okay, not okay. I just can't do it. I've got to find something different. Mm -hmm. So they escaped toxic cultures. So my question is, 
are people escaping from your toxic culture or escaping to your non-toxic culture? And I think that's what we, we're seeing now in, in the marketplace. So, you know, leaders should have got a very significant slap up the side of the head and, and a big wake-up call mm-hmm. because people are not going to put up with this anymore. The owl-type leadership where, you know, owl is the master of control. He thinks he's corporate royalty. They think learning is for losers. The ego eats the empathy instead of empathy eating the ego. They have all the answers. They must always be right. They love a fear-based culture. They think micromanagement is essential. Mm -hmm. They don't follow through on their commitments. They hate feedback. All of those behaviours that are causing these toxic cultures, uh, people are not going to put up with it anymore. Couple things. Um, first, I will ask this. Um, I, I read when you were talking about the Great Escape, um, and you just described, you know, it's it's an escape from toxic cultures. But you wrote about also how it's part an escape from their current careers and workplaces, but um, perhaps more of an escape to a fresh start, a, a renewed, even revised sense of purpose. So, you know, the the second point that I wanted to make, and this will form into a question is, you know, during my intro, you heard me talk about putting the question out there. Did the great resignation, you know, with this trend of people leaving their jobs to do something different, do you think that without the pandemic, we would, we would see this type of trend, whether, you know, it's an escape or resignation, whatever you call it, you know, how, how much did the pandemic play into that? Oh, I think it amplified it. As I just said, you know, they people weren't happy at work and they weren't happy before, but home was okay. So I think it, it absolutely amplified the situation and it really people said, I, I I have to do something different. I'm 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 not going to put up with this for much longer. I can't. It's not my life. Um so they they they're looking for the different things uh in, in their leaders. I want to, um, you know, in regards to the great escape or resignation, I want to, I want to read um, a comment that you made and then get your your perspective on it. Transformation, even upheaval, is universal. It's also timeless. Changes around us all the time. The only open questions are the order of magnitude, not our choice, and the way we respond, our choice. And more to the point of this piece. The ways, and this is in regards to this article that I read, the ways we choose to lead, support, and nurture our workplace culture and community of cherished relationships makes the difference between a healthy tribe of engaged, enlivened tribe members and the millions of resumes that are in circulation today. So yeah, I'm just looking for your perspective on, you know, I guess change, workplace culture, given the fact that like change is universal and we can expect it, you know, this type of change that is more of an empathetic form of leadership, a compassionate form of leadership, this will stick around for a while. Like this will be immune to change, right? Or how do you see change perhaps enhancing this, this concept that we're, you know, t- speaking about now in regards to leading with compassion and empathy? Well, you know, change is a is is really an interesting word because it, again I've said it's the degree of change and and what we've had in the last two years is a, an enormous uh, degree of uncertainty you know and uncertainty is a a series of future events that may or may not occur and at the beginning of COVID there was a huge uncertainty you know were we going to die from all of this um, so you know changes is 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 just dynamic, uh, and then you know you pile on top of that the the unrest there is in the world and the change in in the environment that we're living in and and you know, what's causing the anger that's that's just you know oozing out in a lot of areas around the world and uh, you know it's just there's some sad stuff going on and you know that's coming from somewhere and, and it's got to be coming from people's feelings. Uh, and those feelings are, are ignited. But, you know, we, we are really a, a social animal and, and we've got to get back to a point where people are feeling like they belong. And unfortunately, you know, during COVID, belonging 
was not big because that connection was broken. So I'm hopeful that this is kind of a right turn in the right direction because it is so severe uh, and there, the evidence is there. It is so severe, the amount of people that are you know, deciding to do something different. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we as businesses have the greatest opportunity to make a positive difference in the world. It's not, and, and our business, was, business will thrive if we do it because, damn it, Aristotle was right. Pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. And, mm-hmm. and this is not about, you know, soft. This is not soft and it's not easy. It's hard and it's hard. Leaders have to have a backbone of steel and a heart of gold. You know, and you've got to have both those things together. So, you know, it's not about just singing, singing Kumbaya on a Friday afternoon and free pizza. <laughs> you know, you have to have a clear purpose. You have to have a clear set of values that protect people. And you have to uh, applaud them and reward them for doing great work. But you have to be a great coach mm-hmm. and you have to be brave enough to spend enough time on the sideline watching the game and enough time in the locker room feeling the culture to be able to help those players improve their game and take the prize on the podium. You know, so something I've spoken to my coach about quite often are, you know, this is kind of in relation to empathetic leadership, um, blind spots. Mm -hmm. um, And it's something that I've I've dealt with. I'm still trying to, I'm trying to, you know, understand where that, that fine line is between, you know, having to run my business, but also trying to be an empathetic leader. For me, one of my blind spots, you know, as an empathetic leader is always wanting to trust people and give people the benefit of the doubt, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, that's, I still want to have that you know, as my, my first and my first response is trusting and just assuming everybody is always, you know, doing the best. So it's been hard for me, like when there's been employees who just were struggling to perform, you know, obviously it with empathetic leadership, you know, reaching out, trying to see how you might help this person. But there, there is that fine line, like I said, where you're still, you, at the end of the day, you have to run a business. So you know, talk to us a little bit about maybe perhaps where you've experienced blind spots or maybe some advice um, for, you know, leaders who have this employee first empathetic approach, like how they can deal with blind spots and, and what that means to be an empathetic leader also. So great question. So if you go back to my, my comment about values, a set of values that protect people and set them free. So trust is important, but there have to be boundaries to protect people. So let me use this little you know, story as a as a way of thinking about it. Let's say that we had a paddock with a fence around, mm-hmm. and in that paddock was a herd of sheep, and on the other side of the fence were packs of hungry wolves. What would be our responsibility as a leader of that herd of sheep or that flock of sheep. It would be to protect them from the wolves. Mm -hmm. So how would we do that? So let's assume that our values are what the the, the sheep like to feed on. So in the centre of the paddock, what do we do? We put the food for the sheep. So where do the sheep spend most of their time? wandering around the centre of the organisation, around where we want them to be. If that food wasn't in the centre, they would be tempted to go out to the side of the paddock and get under the fence looking for food and get eaten by the wolves. So trust is really important, but you have to have boundaries to keep people safe from themselves. So in an organisation, a compelling set of values that protect people and set them free is very important because that gives you the vehicle to have a higher degree of trust because you're doing your job as a leader, you're protecting them as well. Without that boundary, without that protection, people will get under the fence and mm-hmm. they will either intentionally or unintentionally, or they could be, you know, they, they could be enticed 
to get mm-hmm. further and further and further away. You know, people ask their question, well, should we do that? Well, I think it's okay. Well, it's, yeah, maybe if we interpret it this way and and they slowly, slowly, slowly get towards that fence and then they get under it, the wolf eats them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our job is to keep them inside. The other part is, Adam, we're, we're not perfect, you and I. In no way are we perfect. You know, mm-hmm. if this, if if people could see us now, and you can see me now, you see behind me there's a whole page full of post-it notes up on the wall. Mm-hmm. They're all my reminders of who I want to be because mm-hmm. I can't remember who I want to be all the time because I'm just bumbling my way down this path of life and the world pulls me off. Yeah, You know, it's the outside world that will pull me away from where I want to be. Even on my computer screen right here, right now, I have a post-it note and it says, am I being the person I want to be right now? And then it says, who is that person? Mm. And I have a list of who I want to be. I want to be grateful. I want to be caring. I want to be empathetic. I want to be responsible. I want to be a listener. I want to be fact-based. I want to have a balanced opinion. I want to be curious. I want to be a learner. And I want to throw sunshine, not a shadow. Mm -hmm. So why would a guy in his 60s who's been a leader for 25 years, need a stupid post-it note on his computer to remind him about who he wants to be. I'll tell you why, because I'm not perfect. And I have to keep reminding myself because the world will try and drag me into places I don't want to be. You know, thank you for sharing that. And I'm so glad, you know, you, you opened yourself up and, 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 you know, expressed that we are not perfect. I mean, I think I mentioned that same thing in my last interview that I had where the goal isn't to to reach some nirvana state where it's just perfection and then everything in life after that will just flow smoothly. And um to the to the you know the the quote that I gave before, it's like, you know, there's circumstances outside of our control. Life is always going to be testing us and it's always gonna throw challenges our way. And, you know, personally, I mean, I, I spend years struggling over those challenges, you know, with this mindset of this isn't fair. I've worked so hard. I mean, even we had a tough Q1 at Sweet Centric. And, you know, last year, I really, I really look back reverently on 2021. It was just such a year of growth for me personally and a lot of hard work also. And, and then Q1 for us comes around and it, it almost felt like, you know, it, we went back to like 2018, 2019 when, you know, we were just kind of starting out as a company. And I, I remember asking myself, like, why is this happening? And even making statements like this isn't fair. I worked too hard last year to be back to where I am right now. Right. Um, and I'm just now gaining a perspective that, you know, this is just how life is. It's going to have ups and downs. There will be challenges and thank God for them because when those obstacles are put in front of us, it really is a time of learning, a time of perspective and a checkpoint, if you will, to say, you know, am I, am I on the right track? Because I've, I've invested all this time in growth and learning and here's an obstacle again. The choice is mine, how I'm going to react to it. And even I was talking with my wife last night, just, you know, saying, you know, I think I think I'm I'm in a more content place than I've ever been. And it's not because my business has reached X state or, you know, whatever, like my my podcast is, you know, reached this number of downloads. Right. It's not about that. It's just I feel when these obstacles come up that my response to them is reflective and it's less reactive. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I think there was this notion perhaps in the, this old way of businesses were of how businesses were managed, where you can't really show weakness. You can't show vulnerability. You have to project strength. You always have to project that you're on the right track. And so, you know, how do you look at the future? And the future of leadership, given, you know, this message I was just kind of describing where, you know, really the lesson is to to achieve that sense of self-awareness and 
and authenticity. So much so. And, you know, it's just over the weekend, I was listening to a, a piece by, it's called Living from a Place of Surrender, The Untethered Soul in Action. And it's mm -hmm. a, a, a series of lessons by Michael Singer. And uh, he basically says that, you know, there's the world around us that we that, that will, will enter us and we either reject something or we accept it. And if we reject something, we put a lot of energy into rejecting it so it will always come back on us. So we just need to surrender to the things that really, as Buddha said, life's, life's difficult. So good. What are, as you've said, Adam, what do we learn from those difficulties and how do we put them into, how do we put them into action? Um, and how do we let things go? I mean, that's one of the biggest, the biggest you know, challenges I've had over time. And it got down to just asking a couple of simple questions. Did I do what I thought was right? Yes. Did I do my best? Yes. If both of those answers are yes, take a deep breath, make peace with yourself and let it go because you don't have room to fill all of your, you know, your backpack of life with all these things that weigh you down that in the end aren't going to help you walk the path you want to walk. Yeah, um, so I was just jotting down a couple notes I wanted to, to follow up on. So um, let, let's start out with this. Let's start with your your framework for success. I read on your website you have a Gary's framework for success. People, purpose, values, execution, and freedom. Talk to us a little bit about that. So, you know, people, it's all about the people. Uh, again, I learned a long time ago that um, there is no way that I could you know, achieve everything on my own. You know, as Ken Blanchard says, you know, not one of us is as good as all of us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to around purpose is, you know, you have to have a purpose in life. Um, my purpose in life became clear to me when I read that piece about the Dalai Lama. Our purpose in life is to make people happy. If we can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. You know, values are what are the guiding lights, the boundaries that are going to help you, you know, be the person you want to be right now? You know, the value is something that you hold more dear than something else, and that's important. You know, execution is around you have to do things. You know, at the end of the day, you can't just have a lot of blah, blah, blah. You have to actually make things happen. And then, you know, the freedom part is, you know, I've often said that you know, people in organisations who have freedom, i.e. they know that where they can play and where they can't play, um, perform better than anybody else. So, you know, I think those people, purpose, values, execution and freedom um, are really important uh, in, in putting together the framework. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, you know, I think a lot of people listening here today are probably going to be curious how you actually put that into effect at WD-40 companies. What, what are the actual ways in which um you, you implement these and implement your you know culture culture first empathetic leadership approach like how do you guys actually do that at, at wd-40 well we're intentional we, we talk about it we're intentional we say you know uh, we have a our, our, our purpose our uh, the reason we exist is we exist to create positive lasting memories solving problems in factories homes and workshops around the world there's our purpose why do we get up every day? To create positive, lasting memories. It's actually our second value. We value creating positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships. You know, so you know, having a purpose, a people, dedicated people, uh, philosophy, you know, that people are going to be the ones that help build our business, clear purpose, set of values. Execution is, is pretty simple. It's, you know, here's what I expect from you. Here's what you expect from me. Let's hold ourselves accountable for that. And then the freedom part is we openly say that if, if you can make any decision you need to make in the company, as long as you use our values as the basis for making mm. that decision, and we don't make mistakes, we have learning moments. So we want to reduce fear. Finally, we have to be a great coach. Everybody, we, we took the word manager out of our 
vocabulary. We don't have managers. You yeah, don't that's, report that's to a manager. Mm-hmm. You report your coach is the one. I like that. And 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 the coach and relationship is a two way relationship. I have a responsibility to you, and you know if you think about having to redirect someone, it's a lot easier as a coach to be able to say to them, Adam, I was. I, I have a commitment to you, and that's to help you get an A. You have a commitment to me, you want to get an A, right? Good, we have that commitment. Now, I was observing your play, and here's what I saw. And I believe that if you were to change that play because of this reason, there's a bigger chance that you're going to score the goal you want to score, or that will make the, the try you, you need to make. And that's the whole, that's what takes the fear out of having to redirect people because. If you're just redirecting people without that commitment to each other, it's, well, why are you picking on me? You know, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. We made a commitment. Mm-hmm. You wanted to get an A. I was, I, I entered into this relationship as a coach with you because you wanted to get an A. And my commitment to you is to help you get that A by observing your play and giving you feedback around how you could, I believe, win in your game. And I'm going to do it by spending a lot of time on the sideline and a lot of time in the locker room with you. So what does that relationship look like between coach and employee um, or tribe member? I think I read you, you describe um, uh, your, the the team is kind of within a tribe, right? So what does that relationship look like? Does it look like frequent check, like one-on-ones? Um, it looks like, as I, I said, spending a lot of time on the sideline. So, yeah, it's one-on-ones. There's formal and informal Mm -hmm. interactions. You know, in our talent development, our talent, you know, system, you know, we we have a formal part of it that we expect at least every 90 days for the coach to sit down with the person they're coaching and talk about how that person is is moving towards getting their A. And it's Mm -hmm. up to the person they're coaching to tell them where they think they are. So a typical conversation might be, uh, Adam, you, you said this is what your A looks like, and I'd sit down and say, okay, Adam, that's what you said your A looked like. How do you think you – where do you think you are on that A? What's getting in your way? Are there obstacles, you know? And you would tell me, and I'd say, well, I've observed this. Can I give you this feedback on that, and how do you feel about that? So that formal part is in place. In that same conversation, we ask the people we coach to share with us how they've lived our values in the last 90 days. Not Mm -hmm. because we only have two measurements of values. You either live them or you visit them. So, Mm -hmm. for example, our second value is we value creating positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships. Tell me, Adam, how how did you create positive, lasting memories and who did you create them with in the last 90 days? We have another value is we value doing the right thing. Adam, give me an example as defined by our value, how you did the right thing. So mm-hmm. that formal part's in play. But then there's the informal. There's the informal part of doing it as well or the when you need to. And let me give you an example of when you need to and how your values help you do that. I'll refer again to our second value, creating positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships. I was in a meeting some time ago in our offices and there was a group of us together and there was someone in that room who was not creating positive, lasting memories. They were having a horrible morning. You could see the toxin just flowing out of them. Mm-hmm. So what do you do in that circumstance? Well, Aldersol sucking CEO would probably reprimand that person right there and then, embarrass them, you know, sure. cut them down. And, and what would that do? It would embarrass the person. But more importantly, everyone else in that room would think to themselves, when, when am I going to get cut down in public mm-hmm. again? That's not going to build any safety. Right. So that doesn't work. Do nothing doesn't work either. So what did, what did I do? At the end of the meeting, I said, hey, Adam, let's go for a walk. So we walked outside of our building and I looked in a trash can and I'm looking behind a car, behind a tree, and Adam says, what the hell are you doing? I said, Adam, I'm looking for you. What do you mean? The you I know and love, who always is striving to create positive, lasting memories, was not in that room today. Mm. What's on your mind? What's getting in your way? Are you okay? And that's how you would use the value to open the conversation to be able to have it. So we had a conversation and we flushed out. You know, he he had a he just had a bad morning, and uh, we were able to do. I was able to do a little coaching and say, you know, 
observing that play, it's not going to do you well, blah, blah, here's what you might think about. At the end of it, you know, we shook hands and hugged and Adam went back inside and visited a couple of people at the meeting and, you know, said, hey, that wasn't me. And they all said, we know it wasn't you, buddy. Why? Where were you today? Mm -hmm. What did I notice the next day? People going to Adam and saying, hey, Adam, how are you today? Is everything okay? Yeah. Are you okay, mate? There's That's c true coaching. Mm -hmm. But it's true coaching showing love. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, I read this um, this concept you wrote about called the I'm okay, you're okay quadrant. It seems Yeah, transactional analysis. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that. Like what is, you know, there's surface level, are you okay? But then there's, you know, actually, you know, being able to get to the the root cause of, of what may be happening in someone's life. How do you, I guess, describe this, this idea of the I'm okay, you're okay quadrant and, and you know, what it takes to, I guess, you know, get, get more of that honest feedback. I think, funnily enough, the simplest thing is to ask, are you okay? So in a, in a great business relationship, we both want to be okay. You know, and if I'm not okay and you're okay, then, you know, I feel like I'm being, you know, the loser. If, if I'm okay and you're not, then you're the loser. But it's, it's, it's so simple, you know. What if you had a sales guy working for you and he missed his sales target for three months in a row? Elder soul sucking leader would run in there and you know, you know, chew the person out. But what if you went in and said, "Hey, I noticed you haven't got your sales target in the last three months. Are you okay?" Mm -hmm. Doesn't that open the conversation for someone to say, "Well, this is what's going on," and uh, so, you know, it's that conversation. It's having the time just to dig in and ask the question. So you know. You just made me think about um, an earlier conversation I had in, in one of our early episodes um, where we spoke about uh, Michelle Dickinson was the guest that day with me. And she was sharing a story about how she was going through a divorce and uh, her her performance review came up, you know, with her with her supervisor. And uh, she she got you know, a lot of poor scores and where normally, you know, she, she did well on all of her performance reviews. And, um, you know, she was kind of like negatively reviewed with her employee or her employer saying, you know, something to the effect of you're not your bubbly self these days, Michelle. So where I'm going with this is what, what's your take on the performance review? We've had a number of conversations on this podcast about, you know, this, this idea of the performance review is it, you know, in this day and age, are they okay to implement, right? Um, and then, you know, what do you think happened, you know, with Michelle's performance review where her supervisor, you know, again, couldn't really look below the surface and, and rather than asking, are you okay? Just, hey, you're not your bubbly self, so I'm going to downgrade your, your rank. <laughs> well... The, the book that I wrote with Ken Blanchard is all about how performance reviews as they were are really awful. Mm -hmm. You know, normally in the old, in the, and, and too much today also is someone sits down and they have an annual review. Well, what good is that? You know, it's like, well, here's what I want to talk about you in your last year and here's some areas that I think you could have improved on. Well, why didn't you talk to me about it 350 days ago and we could have started right. working on it? So mm -hmm. firstly, in most performance reviews, the time lag is useless. Uh, number two is there's no clarity around what does an A look like and the person giving the review is reviewing, not committing to helping people actually get an A. So, you know, I, I think the old type before, and, and then we got really clever. We started putting them on electronic systems so people could tick boxes and you know, come up with grades that were unrealistic. Mm -hmm. you know, performance is an ongoing coaching opportunity. And we need to be talking to people on an ongoing basis around what do we agree that A looks like and how are we going to work together to help you win your game? And this once a year stuff is useless. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, all right. So as we wrap up here, um, I, I have a final question for you and it's you know, in regards to the future of leadership, you know, we spoke a little bit earlier on in this uh, interview about the future of leadership. And I'd, I'd like to revisit that. Like where, you know, where do, where do you see the future of leadership heading? Um, 
It comes down to a, a complete commitment to the fact that we as leaders are here to serve our people. And if we serve our people, they will do their best work. So I think empathy plays a larger part in it. I think clarity plays a larger part in it. I think clarity around the values and the boundaries are really important. And this, you know, emphasis on uh, helping others win. I mean, I think that's where it is. And, and vulnerability and openness, you know, as I said, Al, the soul-sucking CEO, thinks he's corporate royalty or Sheik thinks she's corporate royalty. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the biggest office in the place. They never go to the canteen or the, the cantina to have tea or coffee or whatever with their tribe members because someone's mm-hmm. bringing them coffee or tea to their desk. Yeah. Forget it. You know, leadership is a contact sport. Mm. And we as leaders have got to be in contact with our people and listening to our people and, and you know, doing listening tours and hearing what they're saying. Well, that, that is a beautiful way to end today's interview. I, I want to thank you so much for being my guest here today. I know, um, you know, as, as chairman and CEO of WD-40 company, got a lot on your plate and you're, you're a pretty busy guy. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here today. I, I look, it's my, my privilege and I really don't like the word busy. I think I have an abundance of worthwhile work and sharing this with you today is worthwhile work because hopefully some of the folks that are listening to the great work you're doing here will hear some things that'll really motivate them to take a real look at who they are and what they're doing to others because, you know, life is a gift. Don't send it back unwrapped. I love that. Thank you so much for, for closing with that. As chairman and CEO of WD-40 Company, Gary Ridge has helped reignite excitement and create cultures that foster breakthrough innovation in companies and workplaces in over 62 countries. In addition to his full-time role at WD-40 Company, Gary shares his experience and insights externally through executive coaching, consulting, and speaking. Gary is also an adjunct professor at the University of San Diego, where he teaches the principles and practices of corporate culture in the Master of Science and Executive Leadership program. In 2009, he co-authored a book with Ken Blanchard outlining his effective leadership techniques titled Helping People Win at Work, a business philosophy called Don't Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. You can read more about Gary on our website, eiqmediallc.com slash the change. Our theme song and sound engineering was provided by Shane Sufridi. You can listen to more of Shane's music at www.shanesufridi.com. If you have a story to share about making a difference in the lives of people you lead, or if you want to tell us what you think about our podcast, send me an email at thechange at eiqmediallc.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on The Change. The Change is produced and distributed by EIQ Media LLC. Elevate your emotional IQ with podcasts and content focused on leadership, mental health, entrepreneurship, and more. 